War is always going to be hell, but the laws of war are intended to make conflicts a little less hellish. With that in mind, Congress recently passed and the President signed critical new legislation against the use of human shields, pushing civilians into the line of fire to protect combatants. But more remains to be done. To discuss this life and death topic, I'm joined by FDD's CEO, Mark Dubowitz, and FDD's senior fellow, Professor Ord Kittry, who have been working long and hard on what Ambassador Nikki Haley called, on an earlier Foreign Policy podcast, the most cowardly act you can imagine. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Mark, honorable soldiers protect civilians. Non-combatants, dishonorable soldiers use civilians and non-combatants to do what? To protect themselves? Terrorist organizations and, and other military groups use civilians uh, not only to protect themselves, but also use them to constrain the ability of armies of democracies to launch or defend themselves from military operations. So it's, it's a cowardly act in, in two ways. Number one, they're effectively fighting behind civilians and using civilians to protect themselves. But they're also making it very difficult for democracies to defend themselves from this aggression, from these terrorist activities. And effectively, as democracies, we're not only being forced to fight with one hand tied behind our back, we're being forced to fight with both hands tied behind our back. So in a way, the use of human shields, the use of civilians, non-combatants, putting them in the line of fire, it's a form of actual deterrence because your enemy may be deterred from attacking the targets it wants to attack to protect its citizens. So it can be used that way. And then it's also a, a public relations gambit because if if your enemy does go after the targets, does hit the non-combatants you put in the way, you can say, look, look how cruel my enemy is. Look what they are doing to us. Am I right? That's exactly right. I mean, the U.S. military and, and militaries of other democracies do their best to minimize civilian casualties. And what these terrorist organizations do is they take missiles and heavy weaponry and they they hide them in homes and schools and hospitals. And then they fire these missiles at the militaries of, of the United States, of Israel, of other countries. Those countries then do everything possible to try and destroy these missile launches without causing civilian casualties. But of course, civilian casualties are going to occur when there are missiles in the basements of homes or under schools or hospitals. And then there's a huge strategic communications victory for these terrorist organizations who can then cry out war crimes. The United States is committing war crimes. Right. Only it's they who are committing war crimes. We'll get back to that in a minute. Or am I correct that this is this tactic, and it is a military tactic, it's, it's nothing new. The, the Germans used it in World War II. 
The Japanese used it in World War II. North Koreans, I believe, reportedly used it. Am I right? This goes back. This is not something that just occurred to people in the in the twenty first century. Yeah, this this goes back a long way. Um, it's probably been heightened by the uh, international communications explosion, where um, you know news and images can be sent all over the world in a moment. But uh, yes, it's been used uh, not only uh, by Hamas or. Hezbollah, but also by uh, various opponents of the United States. For instance, uh, terrorists uh, in uh, August 2016, Islamic State fighters fleeing Manbij, Syria, escaped destruction by placing civilians in each of 500 vehicles in their retreating convoy. Uh, U.S. forces therefore didn't fire on the cars. Uh, as one uh, U.S. spokesman said, we had to treat them all as non-combatants. We couldn't shoot. We just watched them. Uh, ISIS also used human shields during battles for the Iraqi cities of Mosul, Fallujah, and Ramadi. Each time they used this to prolong their hold on important territory. They held this territory longer than they would have because they used this despicable tactic, the use of human shields. Um, Meanwhile, the Taliban have also regularly used human shields uh, against the U.S. and NATO. Uh, Professor Charles Dunlap, who retired in 2010 as uh, the Deputy Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force, has written extensively uh, about this. Dunlap talks about, um, he said, for the Taliban to survive, it's not necessary for them to build conventional air defenses. Instead, just by operating amongst civilians, they enjoy a legal sanctuary created by NATO's self-imposed restrictions that is as secure as any fortress bristling with anti-aircraft guns. In other words, they protect themselves against NATO by hiding themselves among civilians. All right, so this has been used before, this has been known before, but wasn't it post-World War II made into a war crime? Wasn't that achieved by the 1949 Geneva Conventions, uh, at least, uh, if not by the 1977 edition Protocol uh, 1 to the Geneva Conventions? Isn't this, isn't this a war crime and hasn't it been for generations? You're right, Cliff. The use of human shields is forbidden by the Geneva Conventions. However, it has not been vigorously enforced against uh, terrorist groups in particular. Groups notice that the law is not being enforced, so they keep breaking it. All right. So I want to get back to that, too, but I want to ask you more. So we have now a law passed by the U.S. Congress. I know you uh, wrote about this uh, with Ord and with uh, Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, um, in, very much in favor of it. Um, I think one might say, okay, so it's, it's against the law here in the U.S. to use human shields. It's not happening very much in the U.S. How does that, how does that help matters? So, Cliff, it was very important. This law was passed unanimously by the House and Senate, very important during these bitterly partisan mm -hmm. times that Congress came together again unanimously to make it, under U.S. law, illegal for terrorist organizations to use civilians as human shields. The second thing is it's, it's critical because it now gives the president the authority to go and designate specifically individuals and entities that are involved in building the infrastructure of human shields. And what do we mean by the infrastructure of human shields? You know, again, it, this is not just a member of a terrorist organization deciding one day to knock on the door of somebody in a village and say, can I put a missile in your basement? This, this requires an entire infrastructure. It requires going into a village, getting permission from the mayor, 
and the city council for a permit to actually build that basement under the hospital. It means going to the local construction company, talking to the general contractor and saying, I'd like you to build me that basement and I'd like you to design it in a special way so I can fire sophisticated missiles from the basement of that hospital. It requires the banks and insurance companies and others to actually facilitate and enable this. If you're going to do this and you're going to do this right, you're going to need an entire industry to build a human shields infrastructure that can hide a tens of thousands of missiles of a sophisticated terrorist organization. And so what the law allows the president to do is with his authority to designate specifically those mayors and city councilmen, mm -hmm. general contractors, employees of construction companies, banks, insurance companies that are engaged in building this entire human shields infrastructure, single them out by name and single them out not only to a U.S. audience, but more importantly, to the local audience uh, that is in that country who can now understand better who's actually involved in building this infrastructure and holding them hostage, and to an international audience so you begin to understand the nexus between human shields, terrorist organizations, and ways in which war is being waged illegally. And that ha that's incredibly important for political and strategic communications reasons. And or is that what you mean by enforcement? Or no. is there more to it than that? No, I mean, what, what you have to do is you have to convince uh, terrorists and particularly their supporters that there's going to be a price to be paid for violating this law. Now, terrorists can be hard to deter, but uh, their supporters, uh, as Mark mentioned, are less hard uh, to deter. Uh, these are businessmen, these are mayors, maybe they like to travel to the United States, uh, maybe they are, are in business in one way or the other, and uh, it can help dissuade them. It can help put a taboo in this kind of activity uh, if you impose sanctions, if you list them. Uh, the other, the other uh, aspect of this is that some in Europe treat Hamas as two different entities, you know, a, a, uh, a military entity and a so-called political wing. What's interesting is that it's often the folks in the political wing who are involved in, for instance, calling on civilians to go to rooftops of buildings that are about to be bombed. Uh, to protect them against Israeli uh, fighters and that sort of thing. You have a leading spokesman uh, for Hamas, somebody who's traveled to Europe uh, several times in the, in the last decade, who has repeatedly called on civilians to do this. If you're able to designate him, you show uh, the political wing of Hamas for what it is, engaged in war crimes, delegitimize their spokesman. So based on what you said, what you just said, Mark, I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking away that it's Hamas and Hezbollah that are most egregiously uh, right now using human shields and, and creating infrastructure to do it, particularly in Lebanon, where we know that Hamas is building missiles in, and, and, and placing them into schools and mosques and hospitals and homes. That's what we're talking about in particular. Am I correct? So certainly Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza really uh, created this weapon of war or certainly have perfected, particularly in the modern era, as, as Orda suggested. But they have also taught terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban to use this tactic against the United States, against the Brits, the French, uh, members of NATO who have been fighting in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq and, and around the world. But I, it, you're right. I mean, really, Hezbollah is the terrorist organization that has been most egregious in its use of human shields, uh, followed by Hamas, followed by these other terror groups. And I think it's important to understand you know, that these... The law that's been passed 
the designations that are going to be made are, again, as Ord says, they potentially could deter, they could potentially punish. But Cliff, you, you've you been in the business for a long time in terms of understanding the importance of strategic communications and really helping to educate uh, policymakers and the public about what's really going on in national security and foreign policy. And, and I'll just give you sort of one e- example of how you can actually use designations to break the conventional wisdom that often hardens in this town. So right after uh, 9-11, we all heard from all the experts that Al-Qaeda and Iran never work together because Sunnis and Shiites never work together. They're sworn enemies and they would never work together against the United States. Well, actually, that wasn't true. And the Obama administration, in fact, used Treasury Department designations to designate Iranian operatives and officials who had created a core facilitation pipeline using Iranian territory for al-Qaeda terrorists. And as a result of all of those designations, it broke the conventional wisdom. And so it no longer could you have all these experts showing up on television and saying Shiites and Sunnis never work together. Iran and al-Qaeda would never cooperate. Well, now you have had an evidentiary trail. You had numerous designations that were made by the U.S. government that actually established the principle, well, of course, they do work together. And that's why the same thing you want to do with human shields and these authorities. You want to be able to do these designations, go after the mayors and city councilmen and others in southern Lebanon in these Shiite towns who are responsible for building this human shields infrastructure. Similarly, in Gaza with Hamas, Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere with ISIS and al-Qaeda. And you want to establish the principle that the terrorist organizations are using human shields. They're holding civilians hostage. They're responsible for civilian casualty in the case of, of military as conflict. As well as their enablers, obviously. Very, very important part. I know, and, and, I, and I mentioned earlier, Nikki Haley, as ambassador to the UN, was very seized by this topic. We expect her successor to be as well. You've worked on this as well. The General Assembly actually did take an action um, with unanimously against human shields. Now, the General Assembly doesn't in any sense make international law, but it's, is that not encouraging that the General Assembly at least recognized that the use of human shields is wrong? I think it's an important sign, and I think it's to the credit of Ambassador Haley and, and her efforts. Uh, yeah, on June 26, 2018, uh, the UN General Assembly condemned the use of human shields in its updated resolution on UN uh, global counterterrorism issues. Um, It was adopted unanimously, and this was reportedly the first time any General Assembly resolution had condemned the use of human shields. Now, there's there's still more that the UN could do on this issue. Uh, Be happy to talk about what the UN Security Council, uh, particularly, could could do on this issue. Yeah, we'd like to see a resolution. I would think uh, by the UN Security Council would Russia and China go along with something like that? You know, it's interesting uh, because Russia has um, itself been uh, subjected to the use of human shields uh, by terrorist groups, uh, particularly in the Chechen conflict. Uh, There was a very uh, well-publicized example where um, uh, the Chechen warlord Shamil Basayev uh, basically led a withdrawal from a particular town, and he did it much the 
way uh, the Islamic State did out of Manbij. He basically took a bunch of civilians with him and insulated himself from uh, enforcement action uh, by the Russian government. So Putin himself has complained about the use of human shields, uh, both uh, by the Chechens and also by the Islamic State. So there's reason to believe that Russia, at least, uh, would be sympathetic. And um, so the advantage of having the UN Security Council pass a resolution is that a UN Security Council resolution uh, can be legally binding and it can require states, member states of the UN, to take certain steps to implement, right? As we mentioned, it is against the Geneva Conventions to um, use human shields. However, I did a survey even NATO, our allies in NATO, only half of the countries, actually a little less than half, 14 out of 29 member states of NATO have implemented that prohibition into their domestic laws. So if you look at Turkey, for example, they don't have a prohibition on the use of human shields in their domestic law. They don't even have it in their military manual. So when we, for instance, go to Turkey and say, well, you know, we want you to extradite so-and-so, because they were involved with human shields, uh, the Turks, you know, it would be, even if they wanted to, it would be harder for them to extradite because uh, it's not a crime in Turkey uh, to use human shields. So therefore, extradition is much harder to, to process. So this is something that you could have the UN Security Council do, require member states to implement the international legal prohibition against human shields, to crack down on those who support human shields. And then you could have uh, an element at the UN do reports the way you have a UN Security Council committee on Iran, a UN Security Council committee in North Korea. You could do reports on which countries have implemented the law as required to by the UN Security Council. It would be useful, I would assume, for NATO to have a clear statement on the use of human shields, which to my knowledge, they haven't had up to now. Yeah, it would be it would be useful for NATO. I mean, it's sort of shocking when you look at it that half half of the member states of NATO do not have implemented um, the international legal prohibition on human shields. They don't have it in their domestic law, and they don't have it in their in their military manual. The U.S. has a clear legal prohibition in our statute on the use of human shields. It's also all over our military manual, prohibition here, prohibition there, et cetera, on all different permutations of the use of human shields. Certainly our NATO allies ought to have the same prohibitions as well. Well, and it, and it may even be worse because if I understand correctly, NATO is very restrictive in its um, engagement policy, uh, going beyond what is required so that, and this is uh, according to uh, Charles Dunlap, who was, uh, among other things, uh, Deputy Judge uh, Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force, that NATO took, had, had a policy that it would not fire on positions if it knew there were civilians nearby. That's very moral, but it encourages that behavior. Once the, once your terrorist enemy understands, NATO won't fire on us as long as we have women and children at the facility. So here are my orders. Every command and control facility, every gun installation, any place we have, uh, we're storing armaments and ordnance. I want women and children there 24 hours a day because then they won't strike us. In other words, it's working against NATO. Right, right. I mean, that's not even just a theoretical possibility, Cliff, but it's actually happening in the ground. You mentioned Lebanon and Hezbollah. So today, uh, the assessments that we've seen, there are about uh, one-third of all Lebanese Shiites 
are currently being held hostage and used as human shields. One third. So the population, roughly about a million and a half Lebanese Shiites, uh, 500,000 men, women, and children are being used by Hezbollah as human shields today in villages all over Lebanon, uh, predominantly southern Lebanon. And so you've what Hezbollah has done, and other terrorist organizations have replicated this, is their entire military conception is to fight from urban centers. And in fact, not only to fight from urban centers, but to basically put all of their missiles and heavy weaponry in those urban centers and schools and hospitals and homes and fire on, in this case, Israel, um, knowing that the Israeli military, which is a moral military, which also conducts itself like the U.S. military uh, in a, with protocols attempting to minimize civilian casualties, will restrain itself in terms of responding to those that missile fire. But at some point, when a country like Israel is under constant missile fire, when you've got missiles raining down on civilians in Israel, the Israeli Air Force is going to have to respond. And when they respond, what Hezbollah is counting on, since all of that, those missile launches are in urban areas, that those civilians, some of those civilians will be killed. And when that happens, now you've got basically an information warfare campaign launched to get Israel on CNN and other outlets accusing the Israelis of war crimes. And the goal of Hezbollah is to undermine the operational legitimacy of the Israeli defense forces, constrain their ability to respond, and essentially paralyze them in, in ways that, uh, that cause even more damage both to Israeli and, uh, and Lebanese civilian infrastructure. You know, I recently saw an article in Al Jazeera claiming that, uh, that, that Hamas doesn't use human shields and that this is just a Zionist propaganda uh, to allow Israel's, Israelis to target protesters, for example, along the Gaza border. What's interesting about that is I also noticed roughly the same time that uh, Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's leader in Gaza, quite openly acknowledged that the march on the Gaza border with Israel was designed to generate civilian casualties, to sacrifice, and I'm quoting now, that which is most dear to us, the bodies of our women and children. And he said the plan worked as our people, I'm quoting again, forced onto the world's television screens the sacrifice of their children. In other words, the, he, I mean, he obviously doesn't care that you or I or the President of the United States or the General Assembly says don't use human shields. He says this is our sacrifice. We have a right to do it, and we're doing it for PR purposes. I mean, he's, he's really remarkably candid about what he's doing, especially compared to, say, Al Jazeera. Well, of course, because it works. Now, imagine if the response from the international community, the, the response when a Hamas spokesman goes on CNN is... Uh, your use of civilians is a war crime, sir. Can you explain why you're using women and children at the Gaza-Israel border as human shields? Why why you're holding these people hostage? Why these innocent civilians are dying? You are guilty of war crimes, sir. Imagine if that was the overwhelming drumbeat. Would Hamas and Hezbollah be using this tactic as often as they do? Would Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban be copying this tactic? I would contend, Cliff, they wouldn't because it wouldn't be working. But as long as it works, as long as the response on an international broadcast is, well, then Israel must be guilty of war crimes. And the Israelis are responsible for this. And there should be an investigation of Israel or an investigation of the United States or, or the UK or France, the use of this tactic. 
as long as that's the response, then Sinwar and Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, and other terrorist leaders are going to continue to use this tactic because it works. It is a form of information warfare, and it is absolutely working for them, and more civilians are going to die as a result. Now, now there's a very powerful, very influential so-called international human rights community, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, perhaps most prominent among them. You would think that they'd be outspoken and, and energetic about this issue, about the use of civilians, non-combatants as human shields for militaries, for combatants. But that's not quite the case, is it? No, it's not. The uh, international human rights organizations have been largely silent about the use of human shields. And indeed, until the last few years, the UN and other international governmental organizations have largely ignored the use of human shields, at least outside of their use by the Taliban in the Afghanistan conflict. The UN and other such bodies have typically placed little to no emphasis on holding non-state armed groups and their fighters accountable for any violations of the law of armed conflict, including the use of human shields. In contrast, the UN and its other such organizations have been very focused on holding state armed forces accountable. So they hold state armed forces accountable for every deviation for the law of armed conflict, uh, even deviations from particular interpretations that they have uh, of the law of armed conflict, but they don't hold uh, non-state actors accountable. This has begun to change a little bit. We saw the UN General Assembly for the first time condemn the use of human shields in general last year. We've seen some strong criticisms by the UN recently of the Islamic State's use of human shields. But it's unfortunately the use of human shields against our ally Israel that is the last and is still waiting, still awaiting condemnation by the UN and by the international human rights organizations. For example, the UN Human Rights Council issued last week, February 28th, a report of the UN Commission of Inquiry on the 2018 Gaza protests. This is a reference to this multi-week campaign in 2018, which involved multiple instances of thousands of Gazans, including women and children, approaching and rioting near the border with Israel. Several times during the campaign, smaller groups of armed Gazans used the riots as cover to attempt to breach the border and enter Israel. Our research demonstrates that Hamas repeatedly and flagrantly used human shields during the March return campaign. Remarkably, however, the UN's report issued last week about the March return campaign contained basically no discussion or condemnation of these Hamas uses of human shields, while at the same time, it went on and on condemning Israel's uh, use of force in response to the efforts to cross the border. Thankfully, the U.S. can now itself hold Hamas accountable for using human shields, even if the U.N. is unwilling to do so. Uh, last year, President Trump signed into law the Sanctioning the Use of Civilians as Defenseless Shields Act. This act requires the president to submit to Congress a list of and to impose financial sanctions on each foreign person that the president determines as a member of Hamas or Hezbollah or knowingly acting on their behalf who uses human shields. The U.S. needs to start designating Hamas leaders for their use of human shields. This would help counter the narrative of Hamas and its allies, including by demonstrating that Hamas's leaders are war criminals, and by helping educate the media and the public about the use of human shields and who is responsible for the resulting harm to civilians. 
So, and just to be clear, so the U.S. doesn't hold Hamas as an organization uh, responsible or doesn't uh, sanction the organ or designate the organization, which is already designated terrorist. It, 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 it targets specific individuals who are responsible for the use of human shields. Right. This is what you could be doing under this law. You could hold specific Hamas leaders responsible for their use of human shields. The UN hasn't done it. The UN has looked the other way, but we can do it. The designations could start with Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's top political leader in Gaza. Sinwar confirmed that the march of return wasn't designed as a peaceful protest near the border, but rather an attempt to breach the border. Sinwar said, we will take down the border and we will tear out their hearts from their bodies. He also said the march of return will continue. It will not stop until we remove this transient border. At the same time, he was calling for breaching the border. He also declared that the march was designed to generate civilian casualties. He stated, when we decided to embark on these marches, we decided to turn that which is most dear to us, the bodies of our women and children, into a dam. He boasted that the plan worked as our people have imposed their agenda upon the whole world, forcing onto the world's television screens the sacrifice of our children as an offering for Jerusalem and the right of return. In a speech about the march to hundreds of Gazan youths, Sinwar took credit for leading the march and said Hamas leaders are ready to die, along with tens of thousands of other Gazans as the march continues. Sinwar even admitted that the marchers included some fighters masquerading as civilians, stating these youth and men, many of them took off their military uniforms. So the UN may be looking the other way as Yahya Sinwar blatantly and flagrantly uses human shields against Israel and Gaza, but the United States government now has authority to hold them accountable. Since Israel's enemies, Hamas and Hezbollah, have been doing this, uh, we now have the, the phenomenon of Iran coming into Syria, both with its own troops and with militias made up of Afghans and Pakistanis and other Shia, other Shia militias there. And they've been setting up command and control and other facilities there. And the Israelis have been bombing them fairly regularly um, and fairly uh, vehemently and talking about it more than they did at one point. Do we know whether the Iranians are, have been using human shields? I, we certainly can't rule out the possibility that as they get hit more and more, they'll say, well, one way not to is let's find some civilians and put them in all our installations and make sure the world knows that that's what's going to happen if the Israelis dare to hit us. Well, certainly, listen, Iran-backed Hezbollah is using human shields in Lebanon. Iran-backed Hamas is using human shields in Gaza. Iran-backed Shiite militias are using human shields in Iraq. So I think, Cliff, it, you can probably draw the conclusion from that that it's just a matter of time before Iran-backed militias are using Syrian civilians as human shields. It, it is a tried and tested tactic. Uh, it works. It's successful. It constrains the our militaries. It, it forces democracies to make these terrible choices. And it has, as I keep saying, very powerful value in terms of information warfare and strategic communications to put democracies on their back foot and democracies having to defend themselves from accusations of war crimes when the real war crimes are being committed by not only the terrorist organizations, but but Iran looms large in this. So Iran has played a significant role in deploying human shields and aiding and abetting the development and use of human shields. And Iran also, as a state actor, needs to be held accountable. 
Ward, when we talk about Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, particularly people like the foreign minister, Javad Zarif, he likes to present himself as somebody who is very cognizant of international law, abides by international law, accuses the U.S. and Europeans often of not abiding by international law. But the Islamic Republic of Iran doesn't really take these laws seriously. No, the Islamic Republic of Iran is just a repeat violator of international law. I mean, starting with uh, the embassy seizure, which was a violation of international it's law. an act of war, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah, assassinations overseas, um, support for terrorist groups, uh, violating the prohibitions on supplying uh, arms to uh, Lebanon. The Islamic Republic of Iran violates international law left and right. And there's some amazing quotes, including in my book, Lawfare as a, law, uh, as a Weapon of War, um, with, in which Ayatollah Khomeini himself uh, calls, uh, if, if I'm paraphrasing here, uh, calls uh, international law the handiwork of the devil. Mm-hmm. He just completely scoffs at international law. And so it's not surprising to see the Iranians, uh, th- uh, their uh, proxies, flouting international law and using their own civilians to do it. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, there was plenty of reporting during the the Iran-Iraq war of how the Iranians used to clear minefields Mm -hmm. by taking their own children, putting plastic keys to heaven on their necks and having the children stride across the minefields, thereby clearing the minefields. This is sort of part and parcel of that willingness to sacrifice your own civilians if it'll help uh, uh, beat the other guy. And this is why such laws have to be enforced. But reality is, I think, that only the U.S. has the means to enforce these laws. I guess the Europeans could be of more help than they than they have been in the past. Is that unfair? No, I think the Europeans play a central role in this. And I think, in fact, I think a lot of countries can enforce these laws because I think the enforcement of these laws means, first, a an acknowledgement that this is unacceptable. And then a determination that this is a violation of international law. And then a series of designations to demonstrate specifically who is involved in using civilians as, as hostages and as human shields. And then a, I think the res- net result of that is you actually take away the ability of these terrorist organizations or terror sponsoring regime to, to use urban areas and civilian infrastructure as a weapon of war. Now imagine, Cliff, if you did that. Imagine if Hezbollah could not operate from Lebanon in urban areas. Today, 95% of Hezbollah's operations emanate from urban areas. And as I said, they're using half a million Lebanese civilians uh, to shield their weapons and missiles. Now if you remove that operational construct, that military construct that the that Hezbollah is using, what would Hezbollah be left with? Be left with very little. So that that's absolutely imperative that there's an international consensus against the use of human shields by terrorist organizations and terror sponsoring states. And I think the Europeans in particular, but the Russians, the Chinese, Asian countries, Latin American countries, I think if we get all of them on board, you will be removing something that is critical. To, the, to terrorist organizations, and you will be making this absolutely anathema. Yeah, I would say that with regard to Europe, you know, it's important to note that well, many Europeans look at the Palestinians, for instance, or Hezbollah as kind of freedom fighters and say, well, they're freedom fighters. We're not going to crack down on them. But if you can show that Hamas and Hezbollah are involved in war crimes, 
war crimes are taken very, very seriously uh, in Europe. An example, in recent decades, you, these universal jurisdiction complaints alleging involvement in war crimes uh, deterred travel to Europe by George W. Bush and other former U.S. and Israeli officials. Uh, yet at the same time, you have Hamas officials that we can point to as having been involved in war crimes traveling to Europe. So human shield sanctions can be used, I think, as a way to help turn the lawfare tables against the terrorists. Yes, though what you're saying is that the Europeans had a harsher regard for George W. Bush than for Hamas and Hezbollah. Maybe that's because the laws weren't correct, or maybe it's because of attitudes that are longstanding. Perhaps attitudes that are longstanding, but I think if you also make it clear to the Europeans that these Hamas leaders were involved in this war crime, the use of human shields, you might get a little more traction. Remove all the ambiguity you can. Or remove all the ambiguity, and I think also provide an opportunity for for consensus, I mean, I want to get back to this, Cliff. The law was passed unanimously by the House and Senate. Today, members of Congress can't even agree on, on renaming a cafeteria in Congress after Senator John McCain. So uh, there is very little that the United States Congress can agree on. They agreed unanimously that it is anathema for terrorist organizations and terrorist sponsoring regimes to use innocent civilians as human shields. I think that is a, a very useful and important predicate on which we can build to achieve international consensus, bring the Europeans on board, have the Europeans understand that this is a war crime, this is unacceptable. And by the way, this is a war crime that is leading to far more civilian deaths because these civilians are being held hostage and are being used by terror organizations. This is something that I think everybody can get behind. Well, it's a terrible practice and it's certainly an atrocity, but it does sound like maybe progress has been made in terms of U.S. law and maybe can be made in terms of uh, international law. And uh, let's get together and talk about it again next time you're here with us on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. You can also tweet us at foreignpodicy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.